Exodus chapter 12, let's begin in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at, at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire." Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now let's drop down to verse 21. Verse 21, then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families, and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin, and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. 
Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. And he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go, worship the Lord as you have said. Would you join me in prayer? Our unchanging God, we come to you and God, we praise you for the, the majesty of your person, and for your goodness. God, we're grateful that though you are right to be offended at sin, you have provided a way for sinners to come to you. And God, for no reasons that we can discern other than that you are good and because you love, not that you get an, uh, a fair return in love, but God, that, that you are love. God, we're grateful that you have not only provided uh, mercy, but you've done it in such a just way. And we look and we marvel at how you have told us what you would do and how you've accomplished it. And God, we could not have devised such a, a thing ourselves, but Lord, you, uh, we do marvel at your wisdom and at your ability to accomplish all that you intend to accomplish. And God, because you are unchanging, we trust that you are still able to accomplish all that you intend to accomplish. And that there is no power anywhere in creation that can upset you or that poses any danger to you. God, we ask you tonight to come and rule over us. God, make us to be not just your subjects, but to be your happy subjects. God, we are glad to be ruled by you. Your person is majestic and your law is good and your ways are right. And God, we don't find any fault in you. God, we pray and ask that you would continue to make us more and more like your son. God, help us to love you and to give you the glory that's due your name. Help us to rest upon the things that you have said and to believe that all of your promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Now, God, help us as we look into your word tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are headed back to Philippians, I promise. Uh, and the portion of scripture that we're at next in Philippians is in chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, where we're told to have this mind in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then Paul explains what he means, the humility of Christ. He's already called the believers to humility. And then he describes the humility that Christ himself had, has, had. <laughs> um, and he, des he describes it in terms of 
three different states that Christ exist in his pre-incarnate state the glory and the majesty that was his before he comes to earth and then how he humbles himself by becoming a man a slave and even to the point of death and then because of that and because of what he accomplishes in that he has been exalted highly exalted so those three different states and it's in the 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 shocking distance i think between what Christ has had and how he makes himself of no reputation in taking on humanity, becoming a man, that we see his humility and is supposed to move us to follow in his pattern. One thing that Paul doesn't do, though, in that passage is explain why Christ humbles himself that way. And we've talked about it a bit in the past, but I'd like to look at it a little bit further because I think not that I'm smarter than Paul by any means, but anything that we can do to help see you know, both the, the majesty that belonged to Christ before his incarnation and the incarnation itself and why he comes should you know, serve to help us to, to get a better grip on the, the dimensions, you know, the, the huge gulf that exists between those two different places. So... Um, Looking in Scripture, there are at least four different reasons that we see Christ coming. And we've kind of, we've already hit it once before Christmas, just kind of under the category in 1 Timothy. You know, he came to save his people from his sins. But there are four that we see in Scripture, and they're all prefigured in the Old Testament. And then we see Christ carrying those things out. The first is that he comes to deliver us from danger. And we see something of that in Exodus 12. We'll get back to that in just a moment. The second, though, he comes and makes atonement and provides reconciliation. By atoning for us, he brings friends together. You know, he removes the enmity and reconciliation is possible. And if Christ doesn't come, then that is impossible. And we are still in danger because reconciliation has not taken place. A third reason, though, is he comes to purify us from our uncleanness. We've talked about this a bit when we looked in Leviticus, how sin is not just something that, that um, is you know, not just a transgression in the sense of stepping over the boundaries, but it's also uh, an uncleanness. It, it um, is putrefying. It, it is like a stench that rests upon us, and we need to be cleansed. And there's nothing but the blood of Christ that can cleanse us from our sins. The fourth is to ratify the new covenant. It is ratified in his blood. Well, tonight I want us to look at the first of these. Christ comes to deliver us from danger, or in New Testament terms, to rescue us from the wrath to come. And this is prefigured in this Old Testament picture of Passover. I Assume that you are familiar with the account in Exodus 12, so I don't want to spend uh, all of our time there. But if you don't know, this is the last of the ten plagues that God enacts against the Egyptians because they will, Pharaoh will not let the children of Israel leave. They are slaves in the land. They cry out to God. God hears them. So God performs these mighty wonders and exalts himself and lays low the gods of the Egyptians in enacting the rescue of the children of Israel from Egypt. And this is the last of them. And God will pass over the land 
and the firstborn of every household and the firstborn of all the livestock will die unless this blood is applied on the door. And so evidently all the Israelites listened and apply the blood and God passes over them. But in the homes of all the Egyptians, the firstborn is dead. And so you can imagine the wailing in that land as people wake up and realize what's happened in their homes. For the Israelites, though, they deserved the same wrath, really, that the Egyptians received. They were not necessarily a better people. It's not that they were holier than the Egyptians or that there was some innate goodness in the Israelites that did not exist in the Egyptians. It was that God determined to rescue these people. And he'd already told Abraham 400 years before that he was going to do this. And so now he is doing it. And he brings them out. And as he passes over and... and this danger comes in his wrath against the Egyptians. The Israelites need something to stand between them and God. And it is a mediator. And this lamb and the blood of this lamb on the doorpost stands between them. So that as God passes through the land, he sees the blood and he passes over. And no danger comes to their homes. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And it is his blood that causes the wrath of God to pass over you so that you're not destroyed. In first the lesson, first, <laughs> let me try that one again. First Thessalonians chapter one, <laughs> and we'll spend some time there if you want to turn there. First Thessalonians chapter one and verse 10. Paul is commending the Thessalonians and the things he's heard about them. And he closes this section in verse 10 with this. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. It is Jesus that rescues us from the wrath to come. There is a danger that we all stand in and deserve. We deserve it. And it is the wrath of God. And Jesus rescues us from that wrath. And he's the only one who can rescue us from that wrath. Wrath is an emotion that is expressed by both humans and God. When it is used of humans, it is always described in terms of being a sin that's to be avoided. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. In Colossians 3.8, But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. In the New Testament, there are two primary words that are used both of human wrath and of divine wrath. The first one is, if you transliterate it, it's the word orgy, which sounds like an English word, but it's not that word. So this is a word that is translated often wrath and sometimes anger. The second word is themos or thumos, depending on how you pronounce it. And it also is sometimes translated both anger and wrath. So there's some overlap between these words in 
1 Thessalonians 1.10, wrath is that word orgy. But in Ephesians, in the Ephesians 4.31 passage, that word is translated anger, and it's the other Greek word, themos, that's translated wrath. But let me give you two distinctions that can be made between these two Greek words that don't always show up in how they're translated, but do sometimes. First, the word orgy emphasizes a deliberation where the word themos expresses more of a sudden outburst of anger. It's, it's losing your temper, just blowing up. You know, had enough and... But the other word's never translated that way. This one is. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 20, in describing the deeds of the flesh, among those, we have this in verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger. Not the word in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. In Revelation 14.8 and in Revelation 18.3, that word themos is translated passion. In Luke chapter 4, verse 28, and in Acts chapter 19, verse 28, people respond to truth that they hear by being filled with rage. And so it's an emotional response. It sometimes is a, a response that, that results in an outburst. But in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, this wrath is not impulsive. It is not the sudden outburst. It's not like someone losing their temper. It's planned. It's deliberate. And so the word used is, is the other word, orgy. A second distinction can be made, um, and I get this from a, a book. It's called The Greek-English Lexicon on, based on semantic domains, published uh, written by Lowen Nida, which is a big fancy name for a dictionary that arranges words not alphabetically, but by kinds. And so it tries to categorize words according to kind. And they categorize the word themos, that idea of you know, outburst of anger, that kind of word. They put it in the category of strong desires. And they give this definition. An intense, passionate desire of an overwhelming and possibly destructive character. Strong desires get a hold of you and may even lead to, to destructive uh, behavior. The other word, though, they put that other word in the category of punishment and reward. With this definition, divine punishment based on God's angry judgment against someone. And so one is, is this strong desire, overwhelming desire. Outburst of anger. The other, though, is a deliberate punishment based on a just anger. We see this word used of punishment in Romans chapter 3 and verse 5. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath, and there's that word, the God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Of course, the answer is no. But here, it's not just something that he feels. It is punishment being inflicted. 
So not impulsive. It's not God holding his anger in until he snaps, but it's a deliberate and planned wrath, premeditated. Not an uncontrollable rage, but the punishment that he inflicts on sinners because of their sin. It's also important to remember when we talk about this wrath, it is God's wrath. Because that really changes you know, the character of the wrath in a number of ways. One, if you have a two-year-old in your home who's, who's in a fit you know, and they're, they're wrathful, you're not too worried about that. You know, no one is going to rearrange the entire house because the child's thrown a fit. But some people do have a wrath that's to be feared. They have terrible fits of wrath, which is probably still in the category, right, of uncontrolled. But there are people who live in fear in their own houses because mom or dad perhaps just, you know, whoa. There's this rage, this wrath. There are people, you know, who've been in positions of power who are given to wrath and they wreak havoc on people. And it's a terrible wrath. But this isn't the wrath of a person. This is in the sense of a created person. It is the wrath of God. I mentioned earlier that the Bible speaks of both God's wrath and man's wrath. And that in the New Testament, there were two primary words translated wrath. But in the Old Testament, there's some 20 words that are translated in reference to wrath some 580 times just in reference to God's wrath. In fact, God's wrath shows up in the Old Testament three times more than references to man's wrath. When the Bible speaks of God's wrath, it's not speak, speaking of, of some impersonal things. You know, this force out there, like, like karma. You know, you, you do bad enough and eventually bad catches up with you. It's not that at all. And in 1 Thessalonians 1, it's not even the, the idea of the law of reaping and sowing. You know, you reap what you sow in a kind of a general way. That's true. But that's not what 1 Thessalonians talk, is talking about. It is, it is a personal wrath. It is God's wrath. It's his indignation. It's his anger stirred up to pour out punishment with planned deliberation. It's also personal in the sense that it is his wrath towards sinners and not just against their sin. God himself is a person and he's unalterably opposed to evil and he takes personal action against sin and the sinner who commits it. You, you do know that we are not, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're already that. We're born that way. That's our nature. And the sin that we commit flows out of this nature that we possess. Even as it's a choice that we make. In Ephesians 2, 3, Paul says, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's who we were, Christian. We were children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, some people may object and say, but, but God is a God of love, and, and He is that. But if you run to that exclusively, then you're ignoring a bunch of Bible. 
God is a God of love. He is a God who loves his holiness. He's a God who loves justice. He's a God who loves his law. He loves righteousness. And that love for those things sometimes expresses itself in wrath against those things that he hates. God cannot look at sin and holiness in the exact same way, can he? Is it reasonable to think that God can view honesty and dishonesty with no distinction? They're the same to him? That's not even reasonable. He cannot view faithfulness and unfaithfulness as the same things. You distinguish between those two things. And God distinguishes much more than you do. Much better than you do. And much more consistently than you do. And again, when his wrath comes or when his wrath is spoken of, don't think of God like the two-year-old pitching a fit because he didn't get his way. Don't think of him as a tyrant because that's not the case at all. He is the creator, the sovereign, the king whose rights have been trampled on, whose dignity has been trampled on. Sin must bring wrath. We teach our little children not to touch the stove because it's hot. If you touch the stove, you will get burned. If you take poison, it will kill you. And the soul that sins, it will die. One thing follows the other. Sin must bring the wrath of God. And if the wrath of man can be terrible, how terrible must the wrath of God be? How hard is it for an almighty God to strike you down? Um, if, if he upholds the entire creation by the word of his power, what effort is it to him to inflict some misery on anyone? I mean, how much does it take to really make you miserable? A toothache? A hangnail? Uh, you know, the smallest little thing can pretty quickly wreck our day, can it? And can you imagine when God does unleash his fury against those who are unregenerate, who will not come to Christ? How hard is that for him? Well, it's not hard at all. In some ways, it is, it is you know, the discontinuation of all the mercy that he presently shows them. Isaiah 124 says, Therefore the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. Psalm 50, verse 22 says, Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. Well, here's this wrath, God's wrath. But when does this wrath come? You may think, you may think that you're presently under wrath. And if you're outside of Christ, there is a sense in which you are presently under wrath. John 3, 17 and 18 says, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. 
He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Already judged. Other translations say condemned already. The condemnation of God already resting on you. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. And he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So there is a sense in which outside of Christ, wrath already abides upon a person. And yet there is still a distinction, isn't there, between that and the wrath that's to come. And this passage doesn't speak about present wrath. It speaks about the wrath that is to come. It's a future wrath. A wrath that has not arrived yet. And yet it is a wrath that's coming with certainty. And if you've not been born from above, if, you've not given, if you have given any weight to God's word, then how could you be comfortable in your sin knowing that there's this wrath to come? Many of you perhaps can identify with me in uh, the... Fear you might have felt as a child hearing those words, you just wait till your dad gets home. Anybody else ever hear that? I can remember hearing that. Just wait till your dad gets home. It's like, ah, oh, you know, if mom will go ahead and get it over with, the day will be much better. You know, it's, it's done. But now I'm waiting. My dad worked a job years ago. He got home pretty late. And so waiting till dad got home, it wasn't like he's going to be home at 430 or 5. He was on into the evening. So I can remember one time in particular, and I don't remember what I did, but I do remember this house that we lived in. There was like a formal living room and a den. And everything was kind of done in the den. So the living room was kind of for company. And I remember hanging out in that room for the day, having been told, you wait till your dad gets home. And looking out the window, you know, and, and kind of play around in that room and then looking out the window like, is he home yet? Until he got home, the, the, I'm going to use the word wrath, but the wrath was wrath to come. It had not arrived yet. Punishment was coming, but it wasn't there yet. And there was a dread at the approaching punishment that was coming. I knew that it would be worse than mom giving it to me. There was the dread of it, but even the delivery of it would be worse than dad giving, than mom giving it to me. But the waiting. And so I waited, and the punishment had not yet come. It was still wrath to come until dad got home. But even as I dreaded my father's return, I held out two hopes. The first one was I would hope that I was good enough after mom got on to me that she'd forget to tell dad. Like she, you know, let it go. That rarely ever happened. But I still held out hope, right? Maybe she won't tell him and, you know, there'll be this relief. God already knows. And the judgment has already been passed. And so it's not like he's going to forget. He doesn't, he doesn't get old and forgetful. He knows. And so the wrath is wrath to come unless it's dealt with before it comes. The second hope I held out was while the punishment is coming and I will get it, it will end. 
And it'll be over. And tomorrow's a new day. But the wrath that Paul speaks of here in 1 Thessalonians, this wrath to come, there is a sense in which it is always the wrath to come. When God delivers that wrath and it falls upon you, there's still wrath to come. And 10,000 years after you have been enduring that wrath, there is still no light at the end of the tunnel. It is forever and forever and forever the wrath to come. It never ends because it's eternal. And so there's always the dread of knowing there's more. There's more. It's a terrible wrath because it is God's wrath and we cannot bear it. But it's also a terrible wrath because it is eternal wrath. It is the wrath to come. And what hope is there before this kind of wrath? It's not that you forget it or that it's over. There's really only one hope. And that is that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. There's no other hope. There's no one else who can stand in the gap between you and that wrath. You can't fill the gap. But Jesus can. In the Old Testament picture again in Exodus 12, it was, it was the blood of the Lamb that stood between God and the Israelites so that He passed by them. The Lamb was slain. The blood applied to the doorpost. And it pictured that need of a mediator for them and a substitute to be sacrificed for them. It took a long time for the Israelites coming out of Egypt to really get that idea that they needed a mediator. In fact, it's probably something they learned again and again, like maybe we learn sometimes again and again. Uh, I was struck recently in Numbers, after uh, all the examples they've had of God's having Moses stand between them and God to intercede for them, because there's so many times God says, I'm going to just destroy them, and Moses stands there and says, please don't, don't do that. The Egyptians will say, you just brought them out here so that they'll die. And God doesn't destroy them. But in Numbers 16, there's a few more instances of that. Um, and I'm not going to read all this, but in Numbers 16, I'm in Leviticus, pardon me. I mean to be in Numbers. Numbers 16, we have the account of Korah. Dathan and Abiram, who were Levites and decided that there's no reason why they couldn't be priests. Who, who said that Moses and Aaron, you know, who made them leaders? Who, who put them in their positions? They ought to be able to do the same thing. And so they promote themselves in this way and God opens up the ground and swallows them and their households. And he kills 250 other Levites who stand with them. And he takes the censers, these censers that they would put incense in and burn. They were made of bronze. And he takes them and has them beaten out into a plate. And he plates the altar with them as a reminder that you're not to come near this altar Every time the people saw that, it should be a reminder of 
these people who supposed that they could offer the sacrifices also. Well, no, God's the only one who can determine what kind of sacrifice or who offers the sacrifice, the nature of this mediation. Who gets to be a mediator? Only God can say. And then the people decide it's Moses and Aaron's fault that Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and the 250 people died. And they get mad at Moses and Aaron. And so a plague breaks out. And 14,700 people die. And as the plague breaks out, Moses tells Aaron, go and get your golden censer and fill it with incense and fire and come and stand between the people. And so he does. And in verse 48 of number 16, Aaron took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. He was doing what a mediator does. He stood between them in death. And the plague was checked. When you have the right mediator, the plague is checked. And so they see that. But they still don't really get it. In number 17, the peop, God says, I'm going to try to explain this to these people in a way that they understand it. And so he has the head of each household, the 12 tribes, the head of each of these tribes, bring a rod. And Aaron brings his rod. And these rods are collected and put inside the tabernacle. And you remember what happens? Aaron's rod blooms. This is a stick of wood. It blooms. And it puts on leaves and flowers and starts producing, I think it was almonds. And Moses brings that out. And listen to what the people said. Number 17, verse 12. The sons of Israel spoke to Moses saying, Behold, we perish. We are dying. We are all dying. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Are we to perish completely? And the answer is yes. Unless you have a mediator that God has appointed, yes. You don't approach him anyway. You have to have one standing between you and him. But listen, in Christ Jesus, we do have that. And because we have that, we're not called to just come near to the tabernacle. We're, told, we're, we're called to come within the veil to the very mercy seat because Christ Himself is the mediator. And His blood has atoned and it is taking care of the, 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 the danger. It is Jesus who saves us from the wrath to come. But without that, there's still danger. In 1 Thessalonians... Chapter 2, verses 14, 15, and 16. Paul says, For you, brethren, you Thessalonians, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Here are people who reject the mediator, make it hard for others to hear about the mediator. Wrath has come to the utmost. Must have a mediator. 
In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7, people are going out to John the Baptist to be baptized at the Jordan. And John says in Matthew 3, 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He doesn't get on to them because the warning to flee was, was not a real warning. He gets on to them because of the way they come. The warning was true. They should flee from the wrath to come. But their fleeing will have to include repentance, and it hadn't. They weren't willing to be changed. They only wanted protection from the danger. The warning was true. Flee from the wrath to come. Children, do you know what the word flee means? Not fleas like on a dog. Flee. It means run. Run like running from danger. Running to safety. If you're fleeing, you don't walk. You can't really walk and you know, saunter down the street and be fleeing. If danger is on your heels and you're going to safety, you run. You flee. You can't flee next week. If there really is danger and you're going to flee, then you, you flee now. You run now. You don't plan to flee later at a more convenient time. No, you run because the danger is imminent. And you run not just away, but you run to. You run to safety and if you're running to safety, then you run straight. You're not meandering through the streets and looking at the sights. You're running. You're fleeing. Where do you flee? Well, you flee to Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. He is the mediator. He is the only one who can stand between you and God, so that the plague is checked. In the Old Testament, it was true that everyone who comes near must die. But we have a mediator. Jesus is our substitute. He's the one who died in our place. His blood was shed so that ours wouldn't have to be. And the wrath of God fell on him so that it wouldn't have to fall on you. The wrath of God fell on him so that Jesus could rescue you from the wrath to come. When Jesus, well, pardon me, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming out to be baptized, he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Behold him. Here is the Lamb. It's because of his blood that God passes over you Wrath has been appeased. But like with the Israelites who had to have the doorpost of their homes painted with that blood, blood must be applied to you. And that's done by faith. One more thing as we wrap this up. This is still a great word for the believer. I believe that the context of 1 Thessalonians 1 makes it abundantly clear that the wrath spoken of here is wrath, the wrath of God coming at judgment. It's not 
you know, like I said, it's not the, the kind of wrath that you might get because you reap what you sow. All those kinds of things. It is a, a future wrath, coming wrath. But when verse 10 says that Jesus rescues us from this wrath, it doesn't say that he will rescue us, future tense, although that's true. And it doesn't say that he rescued us, past tense, although that's true. But rather it says he rescues us presently from the wrath to come. Or to make it even more plain, he is rescuing us from the wrath to come. He continues to rescue us from the wrath to come. We continue to be in need of a rescue in a sense that he provides and he continues to provide it and he provides it all the way until he brings us to glory. It is true that everyone who is in Christ, there was a point in time when that occurred and you moved from death to life. But he is also still rescuing you. You're still being saved. The Christian is continually being delivered. So don't just rest on something that may have happened a long time ago. You know, I, I joined the church or I did this or I did that. Don't, don't rest on that alone. God continues to rescue if you're his. And don't be like the Pharisees and Sadducees who also in Matthew 3, as John warns them about, you know, they're, they're fleeing from the wrath in the wrong kind of way. He says, don't you suppose to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. Don't think because you grew up in the right kind of house or you went to the right kind of church or whatever else you might suppose that that automatically makes you okay. But know that those who belong to Jesus are continually being rescued and their continual rescue is evidenced by a continual repentance and exercise of faith. You believed him then. You continue to believe him now. You turn to him in repentance then. You continue to turn to him in repentance now. I'm not talking about working for salvation. But I am talking about a salvation that produces faith and repentance. An ongoing faith and repentance in the people who have it. Jesus is continually rescuing you from wrath. And Jesus provides forgiveness and righteousness to those who are his. And that is good news.